Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. I'm Joey Hungerford with the Bend International Church of Christ. We're picking it up this morning in Philippians chapter 4, but before we go there, I just want to mention if you have any needs, please let us know during this time. Living out this book of Philippians, we want to be looking to the interests of others. Also living out this book of Philippians, just because we are meeting from house to house, social distancing, it doesn't mean we're not going to connect. So if you'd like to connect with us for a, a Friday night fellowship or a Thursday night Zoom call, then please let us know. I'd also just like to remind our members that you can give online on our website on the donation page. Uh, before we get into our lesson, let's uh, have a quick word of prayer. If you're sitting on the couch at home, just go ahead and bow your heads with me. Father God, I, I thank you for this Sunday morning uh, connecting us virtually. God, I pray that you can really open our hearts to, to past situations, to, to current situations, when we can look to your word and discern what it means to rejoice always. And please reveal that to us, God. How can we rejoice even in this circumstance, even when we have no control of the future, even when it seems we can't be at peace because there's so many unknowns? Please help us to interpret your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Over in Philippians chapter 4, last Sunday we talked about either being an enemy of the cross or citizens of heaven. That's where Paul left us off. There are some who are worshiping the God of their belly, uh, but others we can be assured that we are kingdom citizens. Uh, we can have a heaven mindset rather than a worldly and worrisome mindset. Let's pick it up in Philippians chapter 4. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Wow. Three different ways that we can rejoice. And three different characters that we're introduced to. Clement, Syntyche, Erodia. And I'd argue that Paul is giving some very good examples in a real-life situation of how we can put into practice everything he's been talking about. So let's look at that first joy. In the, the first verse there, my joy and my crown. He, he's speaking to the Philippians. Paul, at the end of his life, uh, certainly in a jail cell writing this, you can imagine what does he have to show for living this life worthy of the gospel? What is the result of his ministry? There's no plaques hanging on the wall. There's probably not a lot of money in the bank. He's probably not renowned and famous throughout the land. And none of those things are what Paul places his joy in. Rather, his joy is those who are standing firm. Those who are obedient disciples, his dear friends in Philippi. The result of his ministry is these disciples who are standing firm in the gospel. 
They're his joy and his crown because they've made it. They're, they're spiritually mature and they're still growing. And imitating Paul, we can have a similar joy and a crown. It may not always be there as people are up and down in our life, but if we have a genuine concern for others, a deep spiritual focus for their growth, for their livelihood, for their standing firm in the gospel, then one day we may be able to say, you are my joy and my crown. When they're being transformed and matured and obedient disciples, the result of your own personal ministry, your joy and your crown can be a spiritual family like Paul had right here. The reality is, though, if we don't engage in this, if other Christians in our church, if they aren't our concern, they'll never be our joy. They're never going to become our crown. We need to engage with them the way Paul engages with them. The other Sunday we talked about the need to encourage one another daily during this time. We talked about the need for discipleship, but now Paul's going to look at exactly what that means. He's going to show us this is how you do it. This is how you encourage others. You know, in the Christian walk, you can fake devotion, you can fake service, but you can't fake an inner joy like the one Paul is talking about in these verses. Where do you get your inner joy in life? What is this fountain of joy within you? Where does it come from? Is it dependent on other people and how they change or what they do? or don't do? Is it dependent on God and what He does or doesn't do? Is it dependent on our circumstances? We have to look to these verses to see how Paul gets to an inner joy and how he helps others to be joyful and encourage them. This joy that looks to the interests of others, it's one that selfishness is the greatest roadblock to when we are centered on ourselves. This true joy Genuine joy will elude us if we're not focused on God's people and the things of God. This is a joy that quietly sneaks into our hearts when we're looking outward rather than inward. Look at Paul, look at Timothy as they look to the interests of others and they're overflowing with joy. Paul's about to give us one more example, one master class about how to look to the interests of others, have a joy in helping them, disciple them, encourage them. Let's look in verse 2. It says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the case of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. You know, Paul's words here, it isn't just a sermon, and it isn't just a letter, it isn't just a book, it's a prompt for a face-to-face -face interaction. And same thing for us today, we, we can't just listen to a sermon and we can't just read the book, we need to have these face-to-face -face interactions. That word there, I, I plead, I entreat, I exhort, I encourage. Uh, same word we get for encourage one another daily. Uh, Paul's calling them out publicly. At, at first it seems pretty harsh. Uh, I've certainly been in discipling situations where, I, where I'm called out in front of other disciples and, and this has been cited to me as a reason for doing that. And yes, I needed to be called out for being prideful and address my sin. But Paul does this much more delicately. It isn't a, a calling out. He isn't putting himself above them. He's actually coming alongside them. In 2 Timothy 4.2, says, Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. 
correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. See, for Paul and for Timothy, and certainly for us today, we need more than just a sermon. We need more than just Bible reading. We need to encourage one another, to exhort one another, help one another. Paul has a lot of emotional intelligence in the way he exhorts these sisters. So often we go to these verses and we focus on that exhortation, we focus on this correction, and we, we pick it out of its context. Notice how, how he couches the exhortation. Yes, it seems harsh, but it's sandwiched in between some of the most encouraging things he's written in the whole letter. My brothers and sisters, wow, family members, you whom I love and long for, joy and crown, dear friends, and afterwards, verse 3, contenders at my side in the cause of the gospel, my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. See, Paul isn't calling them out harshly and saying, hey, if you're a true Christian, then you'll be united with one another. No, he's saying, you are true Christians. Your names are in the book of life. You're my dear friends. You're my family. You're, you're my beloved, uh, my co-workers in the gospel. And because you are all of those things, you should work it out. Though Paul gives one exhortation in these verses, he actually gives eight affirmations. And we'd be wise to do the same when we go to help others in discipleship. It's a great challenge for us when we go to help others, before giving even one correction, to try to give at least three affirmations. And here Paul gives eight. These sisters, after reading all those verses, all those wonderful things that he says about them, you can't walk away thinking, wow, they must be in sin. Wow, they must not be Christians. Paul says exactly the opposite. He holds them in such high esteem. That's a patient exhortation. Verse 3, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Notice that he says being of the same mind in the Lord. And we don't want to brush past that too fast because again, Paul says, even another affirmation, they're in the Lord. Hey, remember you guys are already united on that front. You're already united in the Lord. And because of that, because you're united in the Lord, be of the same mind. Hey, this wasn't a threat of be in the same mind, otherwise you aren't united with the Lord. It's an affirmation that because you are united in the Lord, be of the same mind. But he also pleads the church in Philippi, his true companion, to come alongside them and help in this situation as well. And I have to ask us that, are we searching to be of the same mind with one another? If we come into a conflict or a disharmony, are we going to reconcile with others? How eagerly do we seek that out? And if we're going to act like this true companion, like these disciples in Philippi, are we going to be that third party to help in reconciliation? That true companion to come alongside and say, hey, I really want to see you two grow closer together. I really want to see you guys have a better rapport with one another. I really want to see you guys be friends. Are we helping to build friendships like this in the kingdom of God? Paul says that these sisters labored side by side with him in the work of the gospel. They weren't on the fringe, they weren't outliers, and they weren't on the struggle bus. No, they were doing the work of the gospel with him side by side. They were essential 
They were at the core of things, but still they had to get unified. Still they made mistakes. You know, no matter where you are at in your church or your Christian walk, I'd encourage you as you seek out discipling to seek out this reconciliation of being of the same mind. Paul brings it up, this unity in every single chapter of Philippians. It's so essential, it's so important, because if we're going to be a light to the world, a witness to the world, we have to be unified. Disunified disciples, those who are, are grumbling and complaining against another or might have a conflict like these women had, make a poor witness of Jesus Christ. Now, he says these sisters, their names are in the book of life. And remember, this book of life affirmation comes in context just a few verses after Paul told them that they are citizens in heaven. There's a few great parallels for that book of life, though. What does it mean? Where is it at? What does it mean to have your name written in the book of life? Jesus mentions it once. It's mentioned in the book of Revelation about four or five times. And two or three of them connect very strongly with this passage. Revelation Chapter 13, verse 8, and 17, verse 8. Say, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, the beast, whose names are not written in the book of life, of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wander, whose names were not written in the book of life, from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. Revelation it compares those whose names are in the book of life, are in the book of life because they've been saved by the blood of Jesus. But those whose names are not written in the book of life, are those who don't worship Jesus, but worship this beast, it mentions. And it's a great parallel to Philippians, because Paul has just mentioned that, hey, you are citizens of heaven. Yet there are enemies of the cross whose God is their belly. There are people who are worshiping false gods, or who will worship this beast. But we can be assured our citizenship is in heaven. Now, Jesus himself mentions this book of life. In Luke chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, he says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I like going there so much because Jesus speaks of rejoicing here. Rejoice not because of ministry success, and here he's sending them out two by two, and they're casting out demons, and they have all this power and authority. He says, hey, don't rejoice in the power, the title, the authority. Don't rejoice in the success alone of the ministry, but rejoice in the result of the ministry. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. I have to remember that myself sometimes. It's so easy to rejoice when ministry is going well, when people are being baptized, when they're coming to the Lord, but that's not always happening. I have to remember that we can just rejoice because of our standing firm in the gospel, because our names are written in the book of life. If you're in a place today where you're struggling to find a joy, perhaps you can't place that joy in ministry. Perhaps you're not in a discipling relationship where you can say that somebody else is your joy and your crown. But ask yourself if you can say at least that you have the joy that your name is written in the book of life. Now Paul's about to bring up a couple more joys in verse 4. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. A double rejoice in one line. And I love that Paul has a present tense going into a future tense. I'm going to rejoice right now, but again I say I will rejoice, future tense, now and in the future. It's a looking forward that he's rejoicing in. He does the same thing back in the first chapter of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 18, But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether false motives are true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul's rejoicing because the gospel is being proclaimed. Not his own ministry success. In fact, it's the ministry success of others who have selfishly ambitious motives, who are actually going against his ministry. But he's going to rejoice in the present, and he will continue to rejoice in the future because of the provision of Jesus Christ, because of the Holy Spirit, and because of the prayers of others that's going to lead to his deliverance. Now, it's interesting. When, when he says, rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. Rejoice always, and I'll say it again, rejoice. So this present rejoicing and, and future rejoicing, there's also a passive rejoicing and an active rejoicing. Passively, we're, we're being filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and joy is a great fruit of the Spirit, producing this joy within us. But actively, there's also us choosing to be joyful no matter the situation. Now, how, how do we do that? How do we be active about something that is so passive? How do we work out what the Holy Spirit is working within us? This joy is something that we choose as much as it is something that happens to us. Only the Holy Spirit can fill us with true joy, but we can create situations in our lives where the Holy Spirit can work. In the immediate context, the Holy Spirit can work in this reconciliation, like the conflict that these sisters had. We can choose to always rejoice, to not give in to, to self-pity, not give in to disputes, grumbling, complaining, not give in to excuses, but rather we can choose to rejoice and we can choose to have reconciliation with others. We can choose to always have a great attitude, to be that light to the world rather than a, a divided, grumbling church, a, a poor witness. And, and it's tempting. I, I know the feeling, holding grudges against others, giving them a piece of their mind, uh, letting them get what they deserve, what's coming to them, uh, disputing, winning an argument. There's a a false joy here, a, a temporary, smug satisfaction, but it's not really fulfilling. Complaining doesn't really fill us with joy at the end of the day if we're only complaining and worrying. It, it doesn't produce a deep inner joy within our lives. So how do we commit to that? How do we actively just choose to be joyful always? Or how do we encourage others to be joyful always? Well, first, I'll give the disclaimer. Being joyful always doesn't mean to just be a slap-happy and happy and, and when there are dire, horrific circumstances around. It doesn't mean just telling somebody when they're at their lowest of lows to rejoice and put a smile on their face. No, it's a, a reasonable joy and a gentle joy. Verse 5 says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And I think that's an essential component, that our joy has to be rooted in the Lord. 
because the Lord is near, I can choose to have a good attitude to be joyful in whatever the circumstance. This is a reasonable joy and a gentle joy because I'm choosing to place my trust in God, that He's in control, that I have reason to have this joy in my life because God is in the situation. That's a reasonableness that comes from God. It's not pretending to be happy about horrific situations. It's a trusting in the Lord that He is near, no matter the moment, no matter the circumstance. You know, when Madison and I, we, we first moved to Bend, it was very easy to be anxious. <laughs> there are many things to be joyful about, for sure. Starting the, the new church out here and meeting the new mission team members. But, but even before the mission team came, the very first week that we moved to Bend, Oregon, we, we learned that we were pregnant. And we were so joyful and anxious at the same time. We had to pray so much to, to be balanced in our emotions. And we, we were excited as we were planting the church, but also planting our family. And the weeks went by, and soon we made the baby announcements and even started buying baby clothes and more things to feel uncertain about in our future and more things to be joyful about, imagining what our baby would be like. We got to have the doctor's appointments and go in and see her on the imaging computer, just, just a little blip, just a little heartbeat that they could read. And we got to take great joy in that, that God was taking care of us. There was so much joy in our lives. And God was there through it all. His hand was at work. Every day when a new mission team member came, his, he was there. He was in that moment when each one showed up on the porch. And he was there in that moment when we got to hear our baby's heartbeat. It, it's tough to see God in, in the moments that are more dire, that are more horrific. And a couple of months after we had moved to Bend, Madison and I unfortunately had a, a miscarriage with our first child. There were a lot of tears, there were a lot of unknowns, a lot of doctor visits, a lot of comforting one another, a lot of big questions unanswered. How is God using that circumstance? How could we be peaceful in that circumstance? There weren't a lot of shoulders to lean on. So every day, Madison and I, all we could do was, was pray, ask God for answers that, that weren't given in the immediate circumstance. But in asking God for those answers, I, I realized that I may not get an answer for why this was happening. Why, why would God leave us in this situation? I had some, some days I felt abandoned by God, uh, betrayed by God, uh, like I must be doing something wrong if God would do this to us. Uh, angry at God, uh, blaming towards God for, for the, the way that Madison was feeling, the sorrow that she had to go through, the sorrow that I went through. But I realized that I wasn't going to get a lot of answers through those prayers and through seeking and asking those questions. What I could do was choose to trust in God, to realize that God was still at work. There were still joyful moments. As Madison and I prayed and comforted one another, there were still so many good things that were happening. The mission was still moving forward. God was still providing for us, still blessing us. God was there when we heard our baby's heartbeat. God was there when our baby didn't have a heartbeat anymore.
God was there when we went to all those doctor's appointments. God was there through the tears. And God's there when we smile. What I could do in that situation was choose to trust God, realize that God was in every single moment, that I could be joyful always, that I could have an attitude, a, a gentleness, a reasonableness that God is in control. I didn't put a big smile on my face and pretend like everything was okay. It, it was difficult to get through. And I'm sure many people watching this today have difficult situations, even now, to get through. Perhaps you're looking back at the past of difficult, horrific situations. Perhaps you're no stranger to, to loss and to sorrow. These are very real situations, and I, I in no way want to minimize them by just telling you to slap a smile on and be joyful always. It's not the way it works. But, I do believe that God can redeem these situations, these past or present hurts. We can actively choose to be joyful. We can actively turn the situation to be used by the Holy Spirit, who can fill us with joy. Holy Spirit's in these moments, and He's looking out for us. You know, this is what it looks like when, when Paul says to work out our salvation, for it is God who is working within us. This is what it means to look to the interests of others, to not only look to the joys in their life, but also the sorrows in their life. So I just invite you to be joyful always. That doesn't mean ignoring your circumstance. It doesn't mean being unreasonable. It, it does mean helping one another, being concerned for others, looking to one another as our joy and our crown, encouraging one another to be unified, joyful always, because the Lord is at hand, because our names are written in the book of life, because we're co-workers in the gospel, because we're dearly beloved and dearly loved by a God who is in control. So I, I just give one last invite. If you're joining us for the first time today or first time connecting with our virtual service, I invite you to connect with us, a place where we're not just pretending to be happy in horrific circumstances, but a place where we want to be reasonable and encouraging one another through very real situations. We do that by remembering God is in control and what He's done for us as His dearly loved children. I love you all. Please reach out to us if you'd like to join us for fellowship throughout the week. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you.